The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Now we're joined for today's Culture Club by the acclaimed novelist Nisha Dolan. Her new second novel, The Happy Couple, has just come out. And before we get the chance to hear about all her Culture Club choices, let's talk to her about that particular book. Nisha, thank you very much for joining us. Tell us about this, your second novel. It's set between Dublin and London and we've got Luke and Celine, a couple who at the start of the novel decide to get married. And over the course of the action, we follow them and three guests from their circle of friends as they all lead up to the big day. And we take each of their perspectives in turn and see different angles on the relationship. Because it's not convincing that they want to be married, is it? No, not entirely. And that's what a novelist needs. In real life, obviously, you want the happy couple to actually be happy. But in a novel, it's the last thing you want. Okay. And uh, I noticed reading through it as well that um, you're not particularly, would seem like, a fan of Dublin, which I think you've left to go and live in Berlin. When I see a line in relation to Luke giving out about Celine for her lateness, did he teach piano? Did he visit homes across Dublin? Now, here's the kicker. Did he rely on Western Europe's worst public transport because he couldn't afford a car in Western Europe's most expensive city and couldn't cycle lest Western Europe's shittiest lanes break his livelihood earning fingers? Is that your view of Dublin? See, here's the kicker. I do indeed despise the infrastructure, but I love the people. And because I love the people, that's why I wish we had better infrastructure and that it were more livable and that everyone wasn't going to Berlin. But I can't change the infrastructure, so I'm one of the Berlin people. That's a good answer. And how is Berlin for you? I'm really loving it. It's not as idyllic as it used to be. I guess nowhere really is, but it's still at least easier to make your way as an artist there and it tends to attract interesting people for that reason. And... The culture scene is so fantastic that even if you're not into a given form of it yourself, you're still glad the people who like it are there because they're just fun to hang out with. So I wouldn't be the world's biggest techno head, I would say, but I still like a lot of people who like techno. So I'm glad to have the company. Why do you say it's easier? Um, but why also is it less idyllic than you might have anticipated it was? Rent is really the biggest one. I guess for most people, that would be the biggest living expense. It's the thing that makes the biggest difference to your life. Rents are rising, but they're still a lot lower than Dublin and there's a lot more legal protection. You can really plan your life around being a renter in Berlin in a way that you can't in Dublin. It's a lot harder for your landlord to just kick you out of their own convenience. So you'd see even people who are doctors or lawyers, people who you'd never imagine renting in Dublin, really, once they're established in their career, still happy to do it for life in Berlin because it's not psychologically important to people to own a home and legally you're a lot more safe. Does that mean you've left us or would you come back to Dublin at some stage? Still up in the air. I, I have a lot of internal conflict over this issue, maybe got a book out of it. But yeah, I, I do feel when I'm home what am I doing? Like, I, I miss this so much. I miss the instant rapport you got with your fellow Irish person and so on. But then when I'm there for a while, I remember that most people I went to college with have left and found it unlivable. And it makes me really sad, but we'll have to see, I guess. Even if The Happy Couple is about relationships and is about people, does it make it easier for you to write about Dublin as a place now having a certain degree of distance from it? I think so. And I know that was famously true of Joyce and many other Irish writers that once you've been away from Dublin, first of all, there's a natural filtering thing where 
the most prominent things of Dublin strike themselves out in your memory and the irrelevant stuff just kind of falls by the wayside. But I think as well, you get a better sense of what's particular about Dublin. Like I couldn't have told you just how warm and engaging Dubliners are until I'd been in Berlin and no shade because I think Berliners are wonderful in their own way but there's definitely less expectation that you validate your fellow human being as you go so if you're telling an anecdote to someone in Berlin they won't constantly be going oh that's mad oh stop stop like they'll just um they'll barely affirm that they're still listening but then at the end they'll say something that makes it clear that they were listening all along they just didn't need to perform it for you particularly so it takes getting used to okay let's get your culture club choices and we will ask every guest to nominate the first single that they can remember, or first song that they can remember buying. Can you remember? So I'm not 100% sure on this, but I think it was Crazy in Love by Beyonce. Suddenly that was an anthem at that time. That's a hell of a good choice. Let's hear a little bit of it. crazy in love what age would you have been when you got that do you reckon about 13 I would say yeah of a Beyonce buying age not that there's any one age I think she's a companion for life well I was just going to say would you not still be a fan of Beyonce absolutely I wouldn't actively follow her work in the same way but I'm always very pleased when it comes to me because you have some really interesting choices that you've gone to artists who were popular way before you were born uh, for example, your favourite album, you're giving us Edith Piaf. Now, tell us why. I fell in love with her at some point in my teens and it did wonders for my French in a way the French classes never did. I didn't really learn to speak very well from listening to her, but my comprehension improved a lot. But I never could have got into her with the aim of improving my French. It was just a nice, I suppose, side effect. Yeah, I... I think I have this in common with my dad. My dad's a big country music fan because there's always an obvious story and I'd be the same way. So I really like that all her ballads have an obvious arc and characterization to them and you can really hear that in her voice, the meaning she gives to it. I've never heard Edith Piaf compared to country and western before. Oh, there you are. It's all in the story. <laughs> it's a good way. So we have the album you've picked is... Uh, my French, excuse me, 30th anniversary? Is that, yes. what is that in French? Oh God, <laughs> I feel suddenly <laughs> subconscious saying it. Okay, well the track that we have is La Accordoniste. I think that's how we pronounce it. My French has always been very, very poor as my French teachers used to tell me many years in school. Let's hear a little bit of Edith Piaf. <laughs> 
vestie de joie belle au coin de la rue là-bas. Elle a une clientèle qui lui remplit son bas. Quand son boulot s'achève, elle s'en va à son tour chercher un peu de rêve dans un bas du faubourg. Son homme est un artiste, c'est un drôle de petit gars, un accordéoniste qui sait jouer la java. La Java, mais elle ne la danse pas, elle ne regarde même pas la piste. Et ses yeux amoureux suivent le jeune herbe et les doigts c'est qu'elle ont de l'artiste. Ça lui rentre dans la peau par là-bas, par là, elle a envie de chanter ses physiques. Tout son être étendu, son souplesse. What's that all about? So we got a fille de joie. Streetwalker who develops a fascination for an accordionist and she loves watching him play and the movement of his fingers and she's barely noticing everyone else in the crowd. But then he goes away for the war and everything gets very sad for her and then she's imagining his ghost. And uh, I think you could say that Edith Piaf had the original sad girl songs that suddenly few of these women are happy. So does that mean for you, for music, the words and the stories in the lyrics are very important? Yes, I think so. And I think it's not that I can't see the story in other music. I quite enjoy classical music, but that level of story is a lot more abstract. And so something that immediately plugs that in for me, not only is more accessible in its own right, but then helps me see the story in music where it's a bit more implicit. So for a favourite band or artist, you've gone for Nina Simone. Tell us about why you've picked her. I love an artist who takes whatever influence they can. So I love that Nina Simone had training as a classical musician, but equally learned from absolutely every other tradition that she could. And her work is enormously difficult to classify for that reason in its own right. She herself disliked a number of labels. So the... The kind of things I especially like are her rendition of Pirate Jenny from the Three Penny Opera, just this German Marxist screed that you wouldn't necessarily associate with her off the bat, but she does it with real panache. Well, let's hear a little bit of it. You people can watch while I'm scrubbing these floors and I'm scrubbing the floors while you're gawking. Maybe once you tip me and it makes you feel swell in this crummy southern town, in this crummy old hotel, but you'll never guess to who you're talking. No, you couldn't ever guess to who you're talking. Then one night there's a scream in the night and you wonder who could that have been? And you see me kind of grinning while I'm scrubbing. And you say, what she got to grin? I'll tell you, there's a ship, the black freighter, with a skull on its masthead will be coming in. Okay, Pirate Jenny, something I have to say, Nisha, I've never heard before. How did you become familiar with Nina Simone's music and tracks like that? Nina Simone, I 
actually can't say where I first heard of her, but I definitely became more interested after I read Zadie Smith's novel Swing Time, where um, Zadie Smith's love of Nina Simone becomes very clear in how she weaves it into the storytelling. And I think when I've seen a fantastic novelist write about something, even if I weren't interested in the thing off the bat, the novelist's enthusiasm kind of becomes infectious. So then if it is something I'm already interested in, that's even more so. And then separately, I love the Three Penny Opera and Brecht in general, because I'm not sure he succeeded in creating art that had the kind of political impact he might have wanted, but I always like to see someone giving it a go. Uh, The story of the Three Penny Opera, I find fascinating that he writes it as this series of anti-capitalist anthems and then it itself acquires enormous commercial success that I don't think he himself was too happy about but it's still interesting to look at it historically and so the combination of those two elements is great and there's a similar story behind her connection to lots of things. Okay gigs I believe you're not a big gig goer. No and I don't know why I think it's because I'm really bad at planning so if I pay a load of money for something then inevitably I will not be able to make it to the thing and uh, like I'll spontaneously go to all sorts of things but yeah anything requiring a ticket no. But you did nominate a Dutch concert pianist whose name I can't even pronounce that you saw play in Hamburg who is this? I'm going to give this my best guess I (laughs) only speak German not Dutch but Ronald Brautigam. Okay we trust you on that one tell us about him. Yeah, so I didn't know too much about his work, to be honest, but there was a focus on Beethoven at this concert. And I really love Beethoven because he's got this fascinating combination of chaos and then an order that he's put on the chaos. And so when I listen to his work, my feeling is that I'm having this influx of emotion. But then later when I think back on it, it's it's all actually incredibly controlled and experimental and changing over the course of his lifetime but with a discipline that then almost lets you let go as a listener because on some level you trust that you're in straight hands straight hands safe hands but the reason I remember this Dutch pianist was at the end of his really accomplished recital he played Fear Elise this um, song that any piano playing child learns and He did it jokingly, but at the same time with a level of care and did a good job. And I just found that nice that he didn't take himself too seriously, that he he could make a joke at the end of his recital and trust the audience to get the joke. And Germans are great for that. I think there's not the same sense of elitism around classical music there. It's more at least seen as something that everyone can enjoy. Okay. We're going to have to take a break, Nisha, and we have to go through your movies and your books in particular and also favourite television and other things when we come back for the second part of The Culture Club with Nisha Dolan after this. Welcome back to The Culture Club here in The Last Word and Today FM and delighted to be joined today by Nisha Dolan, whose second novel, The Happy Couple, was recently published. I actually noticed as well, Nisha, you have a bit of a background in your time in Trinity as well in uh, cartoons and humour. Yeah, I think finding a way to make sense of the world through telling jokes has always been a real impulse of mine. And it it might be coming from a rural Irish family. I grew up in Dublin, but my parents are both from rural Ireland and very much have the way of getting through a wake where you just 
turn everything on its head and be humorous about it. So I've always explored that in different media. And visually, I think there's a pressure to really distill down what you mean and do it as succinctly as possible because obviously your storytelling means are so much more limited than in something like a novel, which is a lot more expansive. So even though it's not what I ended up doing, I'm still glad that I had that experience and I think it feeds into my sense of the ridiculous. I'll get to your favourite books and authors in a moment, but I'm very taken with your choice of movie because you've taken a brilliant movie from the 1970s from long before you were born. Robert De Niro and Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver. Why have you selected this? I face no compunction in saying that I am a Scorsese head. I love his work and I love as well the process that I've learned about where he really gives actors freedom in just saying what sounds right. The script is only a starting point for him and I think that's why his dialogue is so exquisite and it's not like transcribing a real life conversation. There's still the density of information and the need to entertain that wouldn't be there in real life. But it lets you lose yourself in the world. But what I love about Taxi Driver within his work is how much more comfortable than a lot of his films it is in being slow and in recreating the sleepy consciousness of its protagonist, excellently played by De Niro and... I think the first time I watched it, it would have been alone on my laptop because it is this old, old film, well, relative to my time on this planet. And I think I watched it with a view to going asleep right away afterwards, but I couldn't sleep because all this (laughs) creepy music was just playing in my head. It was great. Let's hear a clip featuring both De Niro and Jodie Foster. Why do you want me to go back to my parents? I mean, they hate me. Why do you think I split in the first place? There ain't nothing there. Yeah, but you can't live like this. It's a hell. A girl should live at home. Didn't you ever hear of women's lib? What do you mean, women's lib? You sure a young girl. You should be at home now. You should be dressed up. You should be going out with boys. You should be going to school. You know, that kind of stuff. God, are you square? Hey, I'm not square. You're the one that's square. You're full of shit, man. What are you talking about? You you walk out with those fucking creeps and lowlifes and degenerates out on the street and you sell your... for some lowlife pimp? Stands in a hall? I'm the... I'm square? You're the one that's square, man. I don't go screwing with a bunch of killers and junkies the way you do. You call that being hip? What world are you from? Who's a killer? That guy sports a killer. That's who's a killer. Sport never killed him. He killed He's someone. a Libra. He's a what? I'm a Libra too. That's why we get along so well. He looks like a killer to me. Oh, that's one that's worth going back and looking at again. It's been so long since I've seen Taxi Driver, but Robert De Niro and Jodie Foster. Okay, favourite play, which is one that a number of people have nominated in the Culture Club over the years. Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. Why have you picked that? Yeah, well, the popularity is understandable because I think if you've got a fixed idea of it and you've never actually seen it, it sounds like this very worthy production. But I was lucky in that I saw it before I had much of an idea about it. This would have been at some point in my mid-teens. And it's so funny. Beckett is an enormously playful writer. And because everything's so sparse, there's not a lot of scenery. The actors have room to do what they want with the dialogue. I think that's also what gives it 
its enduring popularity because whenever there's a new production on, you feel like you're going to see something at that one that you haven't seen the last time. There's a sense of ownership with it. And I think that's probably true of Beckett in general. He's really an artist that Irish people can come to with a sense of approaching a national icon, but at the same time, you've got a personal relationship with him because he's so comfortable with gaps. Well, let's hear an extract from Waiting for Godot, played by Barry McGovern and Johnny Murphy. So, there you are again. Am I? I'm glad to see you back. I thought you were gone forever. Me too. Together again at last. We'll have to celebrate this. But how? Get up till I embrace you. Not now, not now. May one inquire where His Highness spent the night? In a ditch. A ditch? Where? Over there. And they didn't beat you? Beat me. Certainly they beat me. The same lot as usual? The same, I don't know. When I think of it, all these years, but for me, where would you be? You'd be nothing more than a little heap of bones at the present minute, no doubt about it. What of it? That's too much for one man. On the other hand, what's the good of losing heart? Now, that's what I say. We should have thought of it a million years ago, when the world was young. Stop bladdering and help me off with this bloody thing. Hand in hand, from the top of the Eiffel Tower, among the first. (laughs) We were presentable in those days. Now it's too late. They wouldn't even let us up. What are you doing? Taking off my boot. Does that never happen to you? Boots must be taken off every day. I'm tired telling you that. Why don't you listen to me? Help me. It hurts. Hurts. He wants to know if it hurts. Waiting for Godot. And that's uh, Barry McGovern and Johnny Murphy. Now, you also have a musical choice for us. Uh, Tell us what it is, please. It's the musical Chicago, which I find especially fascinating now. I probably got into it when the big film adaptation of it came out with Catherine Zeta-Jones. And at that time... It felt relevant, but even more so now when it's such a hot topic, true crime, and is it inherently sleazy the way that we take an interest in these atrocities and the people who commit them? Because Chicago has such a long history, well before the musical and the film of the musical. There was a play written by a journalist who had covered a a trial of two murderesses, well, two separate trials of the two murderesses and had herself struggled with the ethics of doing so and how it was all being sensationalised. So it goes to show that something can be so specific to our time, but also very universal, that this source material is now over 100 years old, I think, or nearly 100 years old. But also it's just a banger, like the songs are really good. It's timeless. Favourite book, Middlemarch by George Eliot. Before we hear an extract read by Juliet Stevenson, tell us about this book and why you love it. Favourite book is always a difficult category because I come to books for such different things. And so why Middlemarch is that it's really Eliot's attempt to do a bit of everything. She ends up favouring some of her narrators above others as she moves between them in this close third person voice. And because she's a 19th century novelist, she cannot but weigh in in an omniscient way also. But nonetheless, I would say of her works, it's the most generous one, the one that's attempting to at least give us a sense of what we're missing and focusing on some people above others. And as well, I like that it showcases her interest in science and her interdisciplinary sense of what a novel should know about. Like she's right on the cutting edge with the metaphors that she uses around microscopes and other lab equipment, like this relatively new stuff for anyone at the time to know about. And so I think it's a fantastic example of a very curious mind that could do anything 
choosing to focus on people. And maybe that's an element of professional justification that I'm glad when someone who is really clever and probably could have done anything chooses to do the thing that I'm doing. Let's hear a little extract read by Juliet Stevenson. Dorothea knew many passages of Pascal's Pensée and of Jeremy Taylor by heart. And to her, the destinies of mankind, seen by the light of Christianity, made the solicitudes of feminine fashion appear an occupation for bedlam. She could not reconcile the anxieties of a spiritual life involving eternal consequences with a keen interest in gimp and artificial protrusions of drapery. Her mind was theoretic and yearned by its nature after some lofty conception of the world which might frankly include the parish of Tipton and her own rule of conduct there. She was enamoured of intensity and greatness, and rash in embracing whatever seemed to her to have those aspects, likely to seek martyrdom, to make retractions, and then to incur martyrdom, after all, in a quarter where she had not sought it. Certainly such elements in the character of a marriageable girl tended to interfere with her lot and hinder it from being decided according to custom by good looks, vanity and merely canine affection. Middlemarch, George Eliot. And you have a favourite author to nominate for us as well, please, Nisha. Yes, Vladimir Nabokov, just supreme. Um, I think of all the reasons that I read and of all the reasons that I love authors... Sheer love of English is where Nabokov really wins. That's not to say that there isn't plenty else to love and admire in his work, but his way of constructing a sentence and the knowledge as well that it wasn't sheer instinct, that he had his justifications for every single word, that English wasn't the language he felt most comfortable in, Russian was, that it's a labour for him and it's the sum of his decisions that we're getting rather than something that just came to him. I think that's what's really magical for me. It's a bit like what I was saying earlier about Beethoven. I love when something makes me feel things spontaneously, but I can see on another level the enormous amount of choosing that went into it. Television. Uh, From childhood, something that my own daughters got mad into at one stage. Gossip Girl. Tell us about Gossip Girl. Gossip Girl is the best soap opera I have ever seen in my entire life. It's set among private school kids in Manhattan and there's an anonymous blogger who details their scandalous lives. They are supposedly teenagers. They all look 25 and are 25. But (laughs) I think that's some of the appeal when you are a teenager. You don't actually want to see people who resemble your spotty self. So I was quite happy at the age of 15 seeing these 25-year-olds pretending to be 15. And they all have a ridiculous amount of money. And I tried to watch the renewed series of the show and I hated it because they decided that now was the time to have these kids interrogate their privilege. And the thing is, they don't end up saying anything interesting or new. They just have the kids feel guilty about it and then go back to living their lives. And I found it much more fun when the wealth was just taken for granted as the setting. And the show was unapologetic about the fact that these kids mostly were thinking about who was sleeping with whom and who was on drugs and who shoplifted from some boutique or whatever. So, yeah, the escapism was great. Okay, we have a clip from the pilot edition where Serena and Blair face off on the steps of the Met. So, when's the party? Saturday. And you're kind of not invited. 
Since until 12 hours ago, everyone thought you were boarding school. Now we're full. And uh, Jenny used up all the invites. Um, actually, you can go now. Sorry. No, it's okay. I got a lot of stuff to do anyway. Blair? Think we can meet tonight? I'd love to. But I'm doing something with Nate tonight. The palace. Eight o'clock? Nate will wait. Spotted on the steps of the Met. An S and B power struggle. Could probably do a half hour. Did S think she could waltz home and things would be just like they were? Thanks for making the time. You're my best friend. Did B think S would go down without a fight? Or can these two hotties work it out? There's nothing Gossip Girl likes more than a good cat fight. And this could be a classic. So how different are the Gossip Girls of your childhood from the Derry Girls of your favourite adult TV show? Not as different as you might think. I think they have in common some fantastic snappy dialogue and some revelry in the insane. I suppose the difference is Derry Girls does the very Irish using humour precisely to confront the serious things thing. I would say Gossip Girl buries its head in the sand and is very entertaining on those terms. Whereas when Derry Girls is at its very funniest is often when social issues are being confronted and stewed in because it's set in a place where you can't not think about the conflict and so you have to find a way to make it livable for yourself and I think that's so often true that it's people who aren't in a situation who think that they must be continuously solemn about it whereas when you're actually there you can't be solemn 24-7 and so it's one of the funniest shows I've ever seen and it's just so fantastically Irish. To finish, we ask for a buried treasure. Anything, it could be a song, a band, a painting, a podcast, a book, movie that you think people should know more about. And you've gone for a collection of essays by Doris Lessing, Prisons We Choose to Live Inside. Tell us about that and why you've picked it. I couldn't stop laughing when I read this collection because she wrote it quite some time ago, a few decades, I think. And yet one of her biggest themes within it is that we keep learning things about human nature from one historical event, then forgetting that. And then the next time a similar thing happens thinking that it's the first time it's ever happened. And so then reading that after the fact and realising how true that is and how we still forget that, I found hilarious. She's especially sharp on the ways in which the left can divide amongst itself and become more about power struggles within a given movement and become obsessed unhelpfully with a sort of internal purity instead of just looking at how do we materially get things done. But I also think there's a formal appreciation of a well-written essay that can transcend the subject matter and her style is so elegant and in a way that you can't get from reading fiction. I think I appreciate fiction for the sensory blend of things that it can evoke in me but with essays I just really love following someone's thoughts with Almost the illusion that you get when you watch someone dance, where because it looks so easy for them, you feel like you're doing it with them. But if you actually attempted to recreate it on the spot, obviously you would fail, as would they if they tried to improvise it. It's a very well rehearsed and honed dance. And so a lot of my delight in this collection is just watching the workings of Lessing's mind. 
that's all we have time for. Thank you for all of your choices, Nisha Dolan. You've given us some very fresh choices there and it's been fantastic having the opportunity to talk to you. Congratulations on your new novel, The Happy Couple, and we look forward to reading many more books by you in the future years. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Matt. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.